So this evening, I would like to talk about compassion and wisdom. So in a way to follow on from this morning and also to bring that element, which very much was in the title of stillness, questioning and compassion. And because for me, I think it's very important to see that the three are very connected, that the three are very inseparable. And also, especially with uh, wisdom and compassion, to me, they're in a way like the hand. You can't have, you need to have the, the two sides of the hand in order to have a functioning hand, to have a hand who can help, who can be there, that you can use. And it's the same with wisdom and compassion. They really, I feel, have to be together. If you just have wisdom by itself, then I think the path gets a little dry. If you have compassion by itself, then actually it can get misguided. You can have the best sentiment in the world, the best feeling in the world, and actually that could create havoc. So in a way, the wisdom needs the compassion to flesh it out, to give it warmth, give it body in a way, to kind of embody it in the world. And at the same time, the compassion needs wisdom so that actually when the compassion is applied, it is applied in a wise way. Because if we look at meditation, I think it's important we're not just sitting here again to achieve certain states, (coughs) but actually meditation is a path of awakening. And what are we awakening to? We are not awakening to some transcendent, abstract, floating up I don't know where. We really awaken to our own Buddha nature. And what is beautiful about the Buddha nature is that actually it manifests in the wisdom and in the compassion. And we can sometimes feel this on retreat, that you suddenly sit there and there seems to be no grasping. And instead of that, there is not this blank void but there is this amazing openness. There is this, this warmth, this caring, this kind of being at peace with the world, but in a very connected way. And I think that's what very much meditation is about. So wisdom is the ability to see, to know, and also to be acting skillfully and appropriately. I think wisdom, again, for me, is not some kind of abstract concept, but it's very much coming from experience. It is a knowing which is based on experience, a seeing which is based on experience, and also wisdom is active, it's creative. It's kind of having this skillful, appropriate way of being with ourselves, being with others, being in the world. And compassion, as I mentioned this morning, is, is, again, it's not just this warm, mushy, oozy feeling. It's more than that. It's, I feel, engaging, responding, opening to the world, suffering and joy. So again, compassion is not a static feeling. I, I, I love everybody. I love the world. Well, so what? I mean, you know, nice for you, but what about the world? What happens then if you love the world? I mean, is there something going on? So I would say again, 
that compassion is an openness, but it's a movement. It's again, there is creativity, there is movement, there is activity involved again in compassion. It is not just a bland state. And I would even say, it seems to me that as human beings, and I know there is a lot of suffering in the world. There are a lot of violence, a lot of aggressivity. And you might think, but where is the compassion? And I think that in a way, compassion is in all of us, is in everybody. There, there is this innate natural response to kind of go out to other people who are suffering. And even in place of conflict, you will always find some compassionate activities there, though generally it is not apparent because the violence generally is much more apparent than the compassionate action, the compassionate activity. And recently I saw it in action. And this was not Buddhist, but I think that doesn't matter. I don't think that compassion is reserved exclusively to Buddhists. I think it's, again, because it is innate natural response. I think everybody will have it. So I was in our new, uh, new place in France where um, we share this house with my mother and my grandmother. They live downstairs, we are upstairs, so I have a good view of the street and of the neighbors. And I was, you know, when I, whenever I pass through the living room, I would see all these people going to the neighbor house. So they would go and come out. My mother would go and come out. And, you know, it went over days. There was this kind of lots of activities that, I mean, that I had not noticed before. And I thought, you know, what's going on? I mean, something must be happening. This is a small village of about, you know, 200, 300 inhabitants. So, you know, generally, you know, you don't have too much things going on. So I thought, what's happening? So finally, I go to my mom and I said, what's going on here? You know, you, many people are going to this house. What's happening? She said, ah, this lady who lived on her own in this house had just come back from a surgery for cancer it, from the hospital, and she's on her own. So half of the village had gone together to take care of her for the next month. And I was amazed that day after day after day, People would take turns to be with her, to do her shopping, whatever. And these are very ordinary people. They're not specially spiritual or religious. And I was so impressed by that, by that in a way, that communal, compassionate feeling. I was really amazed by that. And it kind of really, again, proved to me this natural, innate response is there in all of us. So, wise compassion. What is this wise compassion? Where does it come from? I mean, from a Buddhist point of view, from a meditation point of view, I think actually wise compassion in Buddhism comes from inside into the three characteristics. And I presume most of you know the three characteristics of impermanence, of unsatisfactoriness, or suffering, non-self, or emptiness. And you might think, wow, this seems again very somber. You know, very little kind of, you know, where does compassion fit in? And I would say personally that it's only through insight into these three characteristics that actually true compassion will arise. That that's, to me is in a way why we meditate, what we question is to understand, to really experience the three characteristics. And what happens then, you really, compassion will naturally arise. So if I can look a little 
into that, little unpack that. So the first characteristic is impermanence. Impermanence has two aspects. The first aspect is death. We are all going to die. Our life rests upon a single breath. What does it mean? It means that this life is precious. This life is fleeting. And if you meet everybody you encounter with that knowledge that this person is fleeting, they might not be there tomorrow, nothing is guaranteed, then you can but have compassion arise for that being, which is like myself, doesn't know when they're going to, ra- to die. So to me, an experience of knowledge of death is actually the root of compassion for oneself and other people. Because then you don't take people for granted. There is so much more preciousness. You kind of treat them in such a different way. And then there is, in impermanence, there is change. And I think one of the most uncompassionate things we can do is say to something, is say to somebody, you are always stupid. Which means that day in, day out, year in, year out, they're going to be stupid forever after. I mean, isn't it a burden? What a burden. You're never going to change. You're not going to change. They're not going to change. I mean, this is terrible. You're fixing the person. When actually, if you know, experience that truth of impermanence, that characteristic of existence, then you know that everyone has a potential to change. I mean, they might change slower than faster. This is a different story. But everybody has that potential for change. And so if you can see that potential from change, then again, this is compassion. It comes out of knowing there is potential, there is possibility for transformation. Then again, there will be much more patience, much more tolerance, much more openness to the way people Ah. Then you have suffering, dukkha, the second characteristic. And to me, again, it's only when you know dukkha, it's only when you experience suffering, that then you know how painful it is, how isolating it is. And then only then can you start to have compassion for people who are suffering, for people who are suffering, who are in pain. Because as long As you push suffering away, it's painful, I don't want it, I don't want to look at it, I don't want to be with it. Then you cannot have compassion, you cannot know what it feels like to be ill and to be by yourself, or to have emotional suffering and being by yourself, or having uh, whatever kind of suffering, only you can feel it. So again, out of the knowledge of the pain of suffering, then arises compassion to want to be with the person, to want to share that suffering, to want to relieve that suffering, if it's possible for us. And then there is a third characteristic that Stephen, I uh, heard mentioned yesterday because of the question of emptiness and compassion. And again, I would say, and I'm sure he explained it well, but if I can add a few words there, that it seems to me that again, if we are self-centered, then there is much less possibility for compassion. 
But if we realize that actually we are this flow of condition, which is totally dependent on the world, we are not isolated entity. We did not just suddenly plop, appear like that. We are actually totally dependent on the condition that formed us. And the Buddha said there are four major needs we have. And if we don't have this met, then life is not possible. And it is a need for food, the need for shelter, the need for clothing, the need for medicine. And generally, we don't create this. Out of all the things, these are created so that we can survive through using them. So in a way, through understanding the flow of conditions, through realizing interdependence, through the way our life is dependent on so many other things, which again are dependent on so many other things, then we realize that actually we're totally connected to everything in the world. So then again, compassion arise because you cannot but be compassionate to something that is part of you, that is, as in the thing from Shantideva. I don't know if Stephen mentioned that image, that in Shantideva, the Bodhicharya Avatara, uh, the Buddha, Bodhisattva uh, way of life in that text, he says, compassion is like if you have the foot which is in pain, then the hand goes to the foot. And it's not because the hand is in pain, but because the foot and the hand are connected to the same organism. And he said it's the same way. When somebody is suffering, you react with compassion because you are part of the same organism of life. So com compassion arises out of knowing that connection, that interdependence, that selflessness. And then you will combat react creatively, respond creatively to whatever you encounter which needs that compassion, which you can help. So, in a way, the wisdom of the compassion will come, I think, from a meditation point of view, from really understanding the three characteristics, from really that experience, and I think the, wisdom, the compassion that arises becomes wise. And so also we have to look at the fact that when we meditate, what we are trying to do is also on retreat, it looks like that. It looks that we're retreating, we are apart from the world. But actually this Retreating in meditation or when we sit still at home, again, we retreat within ourselves. But actually, this meditation is not to be a part, to be a way to be beyond the world. On the contrary, is that through the meditation process, we can, in a way, acquire, develop that wisdom so that compassion then can be more wise. To me, that's what meditation is about. It's not to go away from the world, but it's in order to respond better Creative, more creatively to the world. And, and if we actually look in the story of the Buddha, there is an episode at his time which was very interesting. When you had the Buddha and you had the monks and they were kind of all, you know, in one, uh, during one of the time where they're all together. And so they were going about their, their, their thing, meditating, etc., etc., begging, the Buddha giving teaching. And then the Buddha noticed over a few days that one, monks, one monk was not around. 
He seemed not to appear. He did not seem to be walking about. He did not seem to be coming to the teaching. And he can also wonder what, what's happening to that monk. So he asked uh, people, what's happening to that monk? And they say, well, he was not so well. So maybe, you know, he's taking a break. And he asked again and people say, well, yeah, yeah, you know, he's just doing his own thing, you know. And he kind of was worried, you know, that there must be some reason that he was not appearing. So then finally he went to see him. And that poor monk was totally sick with dysentery, could not get up, and he really was terrible, and he was very dirty and smelly, and sounded like that's the reason the monk had not been kind of, you know, getting to see what was going on, because they did not want to kind of get their hand dirty. And the Buddha said, it can't be so. If you are practicing, if you are my monk, if you are part of my sangha, you have to help each other. You have to have compassion for each other. And that compassion has to be responsive, has to be active. You have to, go, to do something. So straight away, he cleaned the monk and he cleaned everything. And then everybody was very upset, the Buddha had to do this. So then they all kind of started to do something too, because, you know, uh, you know they had to do. But it was very interesting. The Buddha was showing them by his own example that, you know, they, the meditation was not about spacing out, being away. It was also about being responsive and supporting to each other, however difficult the circumstances. There is another thing about in the Buddhist tradition, there is a bit of a debate, I don't know if you're aware of that, between in a way, should we cultivate compassion at the same time as practice meditation, or should we wait after awakening for compassion to arise? Because I had this very interesting encounter a few years ago, I went back to Korea to do some research for a book on women and Buddhism. So I met all these great nuns and practitioners and all kind of uh, women. And uh, I met these um, very impressive. You know, she was the head of the nuns and she had practiced a lot and everybody said, she's a great nun. So I went to see her. And that's was on the question I asked everybody, what about compassion and practice? So I asked this nun about, what about compassion and practice? And she's very powerful and she said, compassion, you know, before awakening, forget it. <laughs> so that was, you know, and she had practiced a lot. I thought, well, that's her, way, her take on it. You know, and why not? You know, that's one take. And that's a very Buddhist take that you will hear again and again. And then I met another nun who was uh, about the same age too and who was taking care of an old women's home. So it was a home she specially managed to get together with very little means for all ladies who had no family to kind of be taken care of in a Buddhist spiritual environment. They were doing meditation and chanting and exercise. And it was an amazing place, very sweet. And they gave them food all the time. This is very Korean. You have to eat very regularly. So, and it was amazing. And I asked her, how did you come to do this? Well, she said, well... You see, I went to the become a nun, and then I studied, and then I went to the meditation hall with the intention, you know, that I would practice and then awaken, and then I would, you know, be compassionate. But as she was practicing, suddenly she thought, well, if they have to wait till I am enlightened, they might have to wait a long time. <laughs> so she said, wouldn't it be better to actually do both together, do the compassion and the practice together. And so that's what, in a way, her practice was about. She would do regular meditation, but also part of her meditation was to be compassionate, to be actively engaged with this old lady and taking care of them. 
And I have another friend, and I think this is the other side of it, you know, to kind of be compassionate after you have practiced for a long time. I have another friend, uh, she's English and she's a nun. She's been a long time nun and she's an amazing person. But she's a hermit. She's a hermit type. And she's, I mean, a few books have been written on her. It stands in Pamo. And there was a book, uh, Cave in the Snow. And uh, she was in the cave in the Himalayas for 10 years. You know, time to time she, get, she went out, but not much. So imagine somebody who can live in the Himalayas, who can be in that cave where six months of the year she'll be totally stuck by the snow and can't go anywhere. So I mean, somebody has really to be a hermit to be able to do that. And so she did this for 10 years. And after 10 years, she decided to come down for various reasons. And now what she's doing is building a nunnery for refugee Tibetan nuns in India, which is really hard work. And regularly she goes around to try to fundraise. So in a way she was this hermit who practiced so hard. But that practicing so hard did not make her heartless or away from the world. On the contrary, now she's, she's one of the most open and spacious person and responsive to people. So in a way, I think this is very much according to your condition. You might choose to practice really hard and then later have this active compassion. Or you might try to cultivate active compassion at the same time as cultivating meditation. I think in a way one has to see what are the optimum conditions for myself and for the development. So I think one has to be careful, careful of thinking one is better than the other. So now what I'd like to look at is this misguided compassion. You know, what is misguided compassion? And how, when, you know, I think all of us have a natural innate response to be compassionate, to respond. But then what I want to look at it in a kind of, again, a little practical way. How can we be compassionate in a wise way? And how can we be compassionate in what I would call a misguided way? And my first experience of this was in Korea. I was in Korea. I was in the town called Pusan waiting for a bus. And I was a little hungry, so I bought some peanuts. Because in, in Korea, you can carry money. So I bought some uh, nuts. And so I got into the bus. But then there was this awkward thing for me because in Korea, you never eat on your own. If you eat something, you have to share it with somebody. I mean, it's very kind of, that's one of the traditions there. So I was in the bus. I wanted to eat my nuts. I was hungry, but I felt I needed to share them with somebody. So then I was looking around for the likely victim of this compassionate act. <laughs> so I looked around, looked around, and finally, woo, I found just the right one. And it was a little boy who was about two, three years old. So I said, and he was with his mother, so I kind of gave some of the nut to the mother to give to the boy, and very quickly all hell broke loose because he could not eat the nuts, and it was very messy, and it was a disaster. <laughs> and I learned then that this was not compassion. It was misguided compassion, actually so that I would feel better about myself. So it was what I would call self-serving compassion. And I think we have to be very careful with that. Because in a way, when you do something compassionate, you generally feel good. You know, and we're generally taught 
to be good to others because, you know, we must serve, etc., etc. And actually, in order not to have that guilty feeling, I'm not doing anything for others, then, you know, we kind of look around. Who can I help? You know, who can I force my help on? And it's not, and, and when you come from that self-serving, even if it's innocent, you can actually cause much more trouble than not doing anything. So I think, you know, to kind of, you know, look at that in ourselves, in our relationship, when is, when is it that we are kind of, you know, doing that misguided compassion? Because in a way, to me, one of the essential points in compassion, actually, it's listening. That actually you listen, you notice, you bring awareness. What is it that is needed? What is it that is required? I think this is very essential. That generally we think what is good for me is good for them. It's generally not true. And especially if you are in alternative circle, this is terrible. You know, you have an illness, and they'll tell you, you must do crystal. No, you must do acu. No, you must do this. You know, and you're there in pain, you know, you know, and you have all these people kind of over your kind of body, kind of, you know, deciding what's the best thing. But what is good for them is not necessarily good for you. So I think we have to be very careful there, very careful. And I remember once I had this experience that I was visiting an old lady in a people's home to help a friend of mine. So every day, you know, the first time I went there, I thought, yes, you know, she's an old lady. She's going to die soon. I am going to tell her about impermanence. You know, we're going you know, to have a good chat about death, you know, things like that. And I got there, and this little old lady was actually, I can't describe what she had, but she had a kind of an illness where she would actually see things that were not there. So like the first time I met her, we were sitting together in a room and she would see huge insect. She would see huge black fly or huge thing. And so I would, we would be chatting. Then she would <gasps> look very afraid, you know, and I would look and there was nothing. And so then I went to see her for a few years. And what I did as a practice was to distract her. So, I mean, for a Buddhist, it's good, eh? I was, my main aim was to distract her. How can I distract her that this doesn't happen and she doesn't have this fear rise up? So then what I did was to chat with her and find out what she liked. So she liked cricket match, she liked roses, and she liked jam. So when I thought she could get a bit fearful, I said, oh, what about that cricket match? And then off we would go. You see, so in a way... I went with a very definite idea which totally went by the wayside. And actually, in the end, what she liked best was for us to, together to sit quietly. So that just my being peaceful for her would be enough, would be really helpful. So in a way, that's why, in a way, wise compassion is this listening, attentive compassion. When you, in a way, forget yourself to listen to what does this person need? Because then the next thing is, can I give it? You see, this is the next question. What does that person need? And can I give it to them? Because I think one of the things we have to see within wise compassion is limitation. That actually, comp we, compassion might be boundless, but we have limitation. So as the Buddha said, we must have compassion equally for ourselves and for others. So that it must be equal. So even there is this selflessness, 
there is this equality. So that sometimes we actually can go beyond. Sometimes we can go beyond ourselves. That sometimes there is something urgent, there is an emergency, and we feel we can go beyond ourselves into this wise, very expensive compassion. One, this happened to me. I was doing my ordinary business, and suddenly in the morning I get this phone call from a friend. She said, I need somebody. Can you come? And I could feel she was really, there was something wrong. So I went with her, and I spent the whole day, every minute, every second I was with her that day. Because every minute, every second I felt, I have to stay. I have to stay. I have to be here. And any plan, anything I had to do that day, it did not even enter my mind. Because just to be there seemed to be the most vital thing I could do. And by five o'clock, suddenly it was clear. She was okay again. It was fine. And then I left. And it was not premeditated. It just happened. So I think sometimes we can respond in that way. We can totally be there, beyond what our, our condition. But sometimes we can't. Sometimes we really can't. I mean, recently I was very ill for two years. I would have these attacks of pain. I was amazing pain, really, really painful. And I never knew when they were going to happen. And when they would happen, then no matter what happened to anybody else, I really was not there for them. I would just sh- close the shutter, lie down, and I had to wait for the stuff to pass. And then the next two, three days I was out of it, and then I was back to be normal, and then I could respond. But at that moment, when there is so much pain, I had to take care of this organism. That organism could, could not really go beyond itself. So I think we have to be very aware with this wise compassion of our limitation, and also the limit, limitation of the conditions. And then <clears throat> there is what I would call, and that I think happens often with compassion, superior compassion. You know, hmm, I am wonderful. I am fantastic. Oh, these poor people. Oh, I have to do something for them. You know, and then you really have very condescendent. You know, these poor people out there, I am helping, I am showing them the way, etc., etc. But actually, I think in compassion, there is total equality. And I think actually we should be grateful that people are there so that we can be compassionate for them because they are the ones who give us the opportunity to open ourselves to them. So I think we have to be very careful of that thing that sometimes the self reappearing, saying, ooh, you know, I am compassionate. And then comes the next thing is when, you know, you are compassionate and then there is expectation, you know, I was compassionate. They did not say thank you. Or they could have at least said that. Or they could have been more grateful. Isn't it very interesting? That when you're kind to somebody, you do something for them, don't you expect something little in return? That's what I would call bartering compassion. You know? You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Interesting. When actually compassion is open-ended. I think this is why compassion is open-ended. You really kind of give it. It's kind of total in that in compassion there is that open giving. You give it without expectation, 
without notion of bartering, of anything you're going to get back. You just give. And then whatever happened will happen. My teacher, Master Kuzan, had a beautiful image. He said, when you give generously with compassion, give as if you were giving a dirty mop. You would not expect great things from that. You would actually be thankful that they take it from you. So he said, in that same way, you know, that is wise compassion. Also, I think we have to be careful when we often identify. I think there is a certain heroic, romantic idea with compassion that in a way we want to save the world, but we're not too keen on being kind to the neighbor or maybe making a little effort in our family because mm, they're not very nice. What should I do? Anything for them. Mm. But I think actually compassion Starts, has to start in very small ways. I mean, you can be heroically compassionate if you want, but I think that is, in a way, a little easy. I think what is essential is that day-to-day compassion. Compassion to ourselves, compassion to our neighbor, compassion to our family, compassion to what is around us in small way. And I think within that, to be creative. I think, in a way, compassion again, has to be creative, to kind of look at what is going on. How in small way can I be creative in my family, in my relationship to my friend, to my neighbor, or whatever? I think this is in a way where we need to start with wise compassion. And then there is also, in a way, what I would call the obstacle to compassion. One of the obstacles to compassion is the fact that nothing changes. You know, if you kind of want to help somebody or want to help something and you put so much effort into it and yeah, 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 nothing changed. The person doesn't change, the condition does not change. And then we think, well, if it's not changing, I'll go somewhere else. Interesting that. That is not to mean that compassion, active compassion, should not have good results. But I think, you know, compassion is also necessary, even more necessary when there is no result, when there is very little change. Because I think they can be changed, but sometimes they're so minute, they're so little. that then we have to have what I would call patient, wise compassion, even with that. And then there is another obstacle, is our preferences. Oh, we love to be compassionate to little cuddly bunnies. Yeah, yeah, cuddly bunnies, yeah. Oh, babies, but when they don't cry. You know, when they don't cry, yeah, babies, yeah, I'll be compassionate, you know. But if they cry, well, <clears throat> maybe another day. But or to be compassionate for difficult people. Somebody is grumpy. No, 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 I mean, I want to be compassionate to somebody who's kind and easy and nice to me. I don't want to be compassionate to somebody who's difficult. When actually the person who is happy, I mean, generally don't need much of your compassion. Because, you know, they're fairly fine. But actually, the people who are difficult, who are grumpy, why are they grumpy? Why are they difficult? Generally, because they suffer. And so, all the more reason to be compassionate at that moment. And then there is another thing which is interesting, another obstacle to compassion, and that is busyness. This is very interesting. You know, a quite nice, friendly, 
meditative, Buddhist, yeah, yeah, you love everybody, compassionate, yeah, yeah, I'll do this for you. But if I am busy, forget it. You know, you are busy, I have this and that to do. Problem, never mind, later on, later on, tomorrow, maybe. Very interesting. As when a busy mind, I think, is one of the most dangerous mind for meditation and for wise compassion. And, and once I saw that uh, with my uh, teacher, Master Kuzan, and uh, he was going away to, to give a talk. And this was long ago when Korea was not so wealthy. So to have a car come in the temple was really amazing. Car came to get the master. The master was going somewhere. So everybody was really kind of busy, busy. <gasps> the car was there. He had to go. And so I just met him halfway. He was going there. Everybody was rushing him. And I just met him. And so generally, if you meet the master, you bow. And I said, you know, please go well. And he said, ah, by the way, how is Stephen? Because Stephen was not well. He was having the flu and everything. And he said, how is Stephen? I said, well, he's not very well. He's still having the flu. Yeah. He said, I have got orange juice. I am going to get it for him. And then he left every, everybody rushing around busy and then, he went back to his place, he got the juice, gave it to me, and then he went. And that really impressed me, the fact that he could stop among this busyness. Because generally, I think this is one of the great obstacles to wise compassion, is outside influence, especially outside influence of busyness. But he stopped, and he could think of something else than what was around him at that time. He did not grasp at the condition. And he just responded. And then he had the time to make something and then come back. And to me, in a way, this is one of the things we need to be careful about, to look at the mind that is created by busyness. Because generally it will be an, an aware mind and also an uncompassionate mind. And to finish, I will just like to... to talk about two things. One is an experience I had, and I talked to you about it at the beginning of the retreat, where I said I was in uh, uh, this meditation retreat, and suddenly I realized I was so self-centered. And I realized everybody in that room, there was four other women, they were just the same as me, totally self-centered. And what is amazing is during that period, later on, one day I thought, this is strange. Something has changed. What is going on here? Something was different. So I look around and I observe for two or three days. And then I said, hey, everybody in the room is doing something for the other person. Because by then we knew each other, we knew our preferences, we knew what we liked, we knew what was difficult. And I noticed the five people in that room was doing everything for the other. And each were doing that for the other. Because this is another thing people say. If you are compassionate, people are going to take advantage of you. If you are selfless, they're going to take advantage of you. And that, in a way, to me, was totally proven wrong by that experience. That actually everybody was doing to each other. So that for 15 days, there was this amazing feeling of love, harmony, and care. I mean, it was amazingly spacious. And then... Because things are impermanent, it went. <laughs> but, and then the other 
thing I like to talk about to finish is, again, recently we went, as we mentioned, we went to South Africa. And at one point, we met a lady who became a friend, who was a Buddhist, a retreatant. And uh, she said, and, we, and she told us about her work, which was to, to teach, to help people teach mentally handicapped children, severely mentally handicapped children in the township, in the black township in Cape Town. So, I mean, since uh, we are interested in this thing, we said, oh, can we come with you? She said, sure, I'll take you to all the project in the three townships. So this was in Cape Town, so we went to all the three townships. And what was amazing is that there were three places where doing exactly the same thing. A few ladies taking care of these handicapped children, trying to find some way for them to learn something so that they can you know, have some meaning, some sensory experience in their life. And the first place was, in a way, the poorest place. It was a very small space, it was few ladies, and they had, you could see that they were the poorest of the three centers. But that place was actually the most amazing place because in it, those ladies were so, you really felt that wise, caring, creative compassion. And the place was filled with ways to uh, have these children have kind of learn tactile sensation if they were blind or if they had a problem with their motor function. And the whole place was filled with things creatively, beautifully, so that the children could be awakened, could kind of have some awakening from that environment so that their life could have some sensory experience and they could learn something. And you could really feel actually the compassion and the creativity in that place. It was quite amazing, very moving, very touching. And then we went to the next place. And the next place was much more beautiful. Really, everything was ship-shaped, lots of space, very good building, very new. And the ladies were very nice, but there was not that touch of creativity. There was a the, the feeling of compassion, but it was a little institutional. And then we went to the third place which again had better facility than the first one. But there, the ladies actually had troubles. Had troubles among themselves, had troubles with the company. And so actually, the care there were very basic. So again, there you also had compassion. But what was interesting for me was to see the three plays doing exactly the same thing, very similar children. And actually, the first one, really you feel that creative, wise compassion. And then the next one, more of that bland caring. And the last one, feeling that he was just on the cusp. And so in a way, one can see that in a way there can be very various types of compassion. But of course, in a way, when we practice, I would hope that we could, whenever we could, try to cultivate that creative compassion. So that in small ways, there can be that creativity when then something else can come out in that relationship, in that compassion. So, thank you. Are there any questions? Yeah? Yes. Um, before I started on the path, uh, I'm retired from business. And I, during that time, I used to always think of people who were compassionate as, as uh, we used to call them bleeding hearts, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and you know, I guess I didn't really give it much thought, and then when I started on the path, I, 
I got a hold of this book by the Dalai Lama. It was called Compassion, but it was just a grouping of speeches that he had made touching on it somewhat. And uh, I got the sense in there that if you, if you don't have compassion, you don't know how to love properly. Mm-hmm. And I went through three wives, and I was thinking, what's the problem here, you know? <laughs> and, and I thought, well, maybe that's it. And so then I, I, then I was starting to, and then I, somewhere along the line, I saw another, another, some other place where the Dalai Lama very specifically said, that, you know, if, if you're having problems with relationships uh, and you don't know how to love properly, you ought to look at your compassion, your ability for compassion, and your practice of compassion. Do you agree with that? No, I would. I would. I, for me, I think, in a way, the root of compassion is a fact that we open to someone else. The fact that we accept that person as equal, the fact that we recognize the life of that person. And then only out of that, then you can have, I think, compassion. But then if we're talking of a loving relationship, these three elements have to be there. And then on top of that, there need to be appreciation. I think that would be the other element I would bring into uh, love. And then a certain amount of chemistry. But generally, we think of love as some kind of romantic explosion. So we kind of think it's just chemistry. But I would say, no, chemistry is only a small part of it. You need to have the three things of compassion plus appreciation. And, of course, the chemistry is important. So, yes, no, no, I would agree with that very much. Yeah? Your point of busyness, I think, is a real big one. Uh, we're all going to be going back into the world that is going to be making demands on us and we'll make demands on ourselves that we need to do this. This is important. Um, I appreciate your bringing that up. If you have any other comments on it, I appreciate hearing more. Well, to me, this is actually, I, feel, I would say, in our daily life nowadays, this is one of the greatest obstacles to meditation and to compassion is not the fact that you are, I mean, the fact that possibly you are busy, but more the fact that you think you are busy. The fact that you, because you go about your day and it's relatively okay. You are, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm talking to this person, ta. And it's kind of relatively okay. And then suddenly there comes this, oh, I am busy, I have this, that to do. And then there is this kind of what I would call the gasping mind. And that generally really disturbs us. It's really kind of, we don't feel we're grounded anymore. And then we grasp so much more easily once that, that busy mind as a reason. So what I would suggest is that to try to notice the appearance of that gasping, busy mind and to kind of then stop and just breathe one or twice and then go back again. Then it will rise again, then stop again. A few moments and then again. So that then it will break it. Otherwise, it just goes round and round. Another thing I would say, to be careful at the way we grasp at saying this is important. Very interesting, you know. I mean, I do it. I do it myself. You know, suddenly I think it's important, let's say, that I post a letter, you know. And suddenly you grasp, and you, you reduce yourself to the idea that the most important thing in your life at that moment is to post that letter. And somebody is asking you for your help, forget it. I have to post that letter. It's very interesting how sometimes we get on this one-track mind, which then nothing can come in. 
So then I think, again, to notice, in a way, how we do that, to notice when do we do that. It's not in order to judge ourselves, but just to notice what are the conditions. How does it feel when I do that? And how does it feel for other people when I do that? Notice if somebody does it to you, how does it feel when you know the person is really not there for you? They just, they gone there. So in a way too, also at the level of busyness, I think it's important to look. Am I doing too much? Because it's back to this limit. I mean, if you're trying to, to put 30 hours a day in 24, well, I mean, even if you kind of, you know, in total non-dualism, there is some limit, you know, time. You know, there is a certain relative time in this bodily existence. So we have to, to kind of bring creative awareness to that and wise compassion. Am I doing too much? Then you could say, should I be more efficient or should I do less? I mean, this is another story, you know, which way does it go? And what has to kind of, you know, maybe diminish a little. So I think then it's each of us has to look in our condition, inner and outer, how can I manage this? Knowing that sometimes I'll be a little too busy, but then sometimes I have to really to be a little more quiet. That we have kind of, you know, to have that kind of uh, spectrum, but not to be, in a way, always in the same mode. I think as, if we get into this busy mode, it's just too, too tiring. We can't keep it up. And then you become irritated. You become tired, you become irritable, and then it's not very pleasant for yourself and others. So how can you reduce those conditions? How can you play creatively with them? That would be my suggestion. Yeah? I think our culture has had a really uh, shock because of September 11th. Mm-hmm. And we are like, what, the busiest culture in the world. We work longer weeks. We have less vacations and so forth. And what I heard is things are, have shifted. I don't know how long that's going to last, but that was such a shock to our country. And I think people are really reevaluating this whole busyness thing. Yeah, because in a way, what was shown was, you know, <coughs> impermanence, death, you know, because this is one of the things that we do is that what by not, uh, in a way, experiencing truly the characteristics we kind of generally say, I will not die today. They will not die today, not tomorrow, not in three months, not in three years, my mortgage, my retirement. So, you know, we have all this future laid out. And because we have all this future laid out, then we think about our life in a very different way. And I think in a way, I mean, uh, September 11th was very shocking, very sad, I mean, in many different ways. But I think it kind of confronted people with impermanence with the fact that, in a way, terrible things can happen at any time. And generally, we feel protected. I mean, this is what was very strange, being in South Africa. I mean, nothing happened to us. We were perfectly fine. Nothing happened to us. But everybody is so afraid most of the time that actually you are unconsciously afraid most of the time. And these people <coughs> live in that society. They have to live it 24 hours a day. That they be poor, that they be rich, all of them live in it. And, you know, we have to, to live with that. And what was really strange was to come back to France. And for the first three days, we would look at each other and say, 
God, this is safe. <laughs> this is very safe. Something I would not notice normally. But actually, generally, we are very lucky. We are extremely fortunate for whatever condition to live in this very peaceful place. We still could die tomorrow. You know, we still could have a heart attack or whatever. But why are we so busy if we feel so safe? I mean, if we are safe. No, because, you see, because we don't even notice we're safe. So we can't even enjoy it because we feel we have to do. I think one of the big problems maybe in modern life is that we have to do to be. Only if we are active, only if we make money, only if we acquire, we feel we exist. I think this is more the problem. The business is more to do with that. And also it is to do with technology, things going faster and modern society. But at the same time, I mean, I must say, are a modern society than not for many different reasons. So again, there is good thing and there is bad thing. It's like in any thing. I personally, I would not want to say modern life, forget it, come back 500 years. As a woman, no way. I don't want to go back 500 years. It might be more peaceful, even not. I mean, it was very violent then, too. So in a way, we have, there is, I think, this romantic, you know, kind of, uh, ah, for this peaceful, all-loving place, it would be wonderful. But sometimes it can be so. But it cannot be so all the time. I think this is a, the stark reality of life. The Buddha said, he did not say everything is suffering. He said there is suffering in life. But generally, we don't want to see that. And I think in a way, wise compassion reminds us suffering exists. And I think that's what these verses were about, the verses of compassion. Pain exists. Sorrow exists. Danger exists. Maybe not for me in this moment, but for some other people somewhere. So at least to be aware of it, then I think makes a difference. Yeah? Well, how can one deal with self-centeredness? This egocentricity. Well, I think this whole retreat has been about that. <laughs> and I think... I think, in a way, I think it will be the last thing that will go, in a way. This kind of, you know, I mean, this is very biological. I mean, first it's biological, then there is all the habits that kind of contribute to it. But it's fine. I mean, I think 50% is not too bad. You see, if we could just diminish it, you know, just a little less power to it, a little kind of, you know, softness to it. That's what I say. I'm, I'm, I don't think we should go for zero percent. That's not the idea. But let, 60 percent, 59, 59. Let's make a bargain. <laughs> I think it's inescapable. We have to accept it is so. But at the same time, what are the conditions that contribute for it to be more so? What are the conditions that contribute to be it less so? And I think compassion is part of the contributing factor for it to be less so. Uh, yeah? Oh, la Any questions tonight? Yes? Yeah? Um, just a couple of small points. Um, I was struck by a couple of your examples about um, the, in the monastery where the women didn't know each other in the beginning and so weren't compassionate with each other and then became so. And then the, the um, older lady in your village um, who... 
village came to take care of. And both those examples, I thought about community. Mm -hmm. How important that factor is in terms of being appropriately compassionate to know what's what's needed and, and what the suffering actually is. And and I was thinking how in San Francisco, and another little piece, I was thinking in San Francisco, I have a, how a, in a lot of big cities, I think, and because our lives are so busy in the way that they are, a, lo a lot of times we don't know our neighbors. We don't really have much of a sense of community, except a, a little community here and a little community there, um, but not a really you know, strong one. And I think how like when I'm driving down the street, like for those of you who live in San Francisco, like Van Ness, as it starts to go into to Mission, and there's always, and there's other places in San Francisco too, where there's a lot of homeless people that will stand in the traffic to um, to beg, basically. And um, whenever I see them, I always am overwhelmed with a sense of compassion for their suffering. And yet, I'm uh, I don't want to give them money because I don't want them to think that this would be a way to earn money to be standing in traffic because it seems such a terrible thing, way to have to spend your life. Um, so I just I guess I'm saying it, there's obviously a lot of suffering all over the place, and when you're not in community, it's harder to give it appropriately. Um, and sometimes there's going to be situations where it's um, it may be skillful to do one thing or not to do one thing, and, and it's not just. And that, and that comes into question in, in a lot of different situations, I think. It's not just, I mean, I think it's important to manifest your compassion, but it's not always uh, going to be wise compassion if, if you do it unskillfully, like you're giving mm -hmm. sort of challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think one of your points is 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 the fact that that's what for me compassion requires that you recognize the other person requires that you recognize life in this other person as equal, and in a way that requires that you know that person, you meet that person. So in a way, I think a lot of the time we don't meet, we don't know others. So then it's very easy to see them outside of our bubble. And with the example of um, the homeless, I mean, possibly one can decide or not. I mean, that's in South Africa. This was one of the main debate. Do you give to the children who beg or not? And for me, it was fascinating to see how everybody had their own strategy. Some people who gave all the time because their life was much worse than them. Somebody who gave, who did not give because they did not want it for them to earn money that way. I mean, it was very interesting to see the different level. But at the same time, if one, in a way, cared for that situation, what one could do in order to know uh, the homeless would be to work, uh, possibly with a soup kitchen, but to work in such a way that you are not just kind of feeding them, but you're actually meeting them. You're actually asking them about their life, what they do, how they... You connect with them at a human level. To me, that is an essential part of compassion. Sure, sure. And, and then it's kind of your choice. You see, is I think life presents us again and again with ethical, compassionate choices. What do we do? Because in a way, generally, our situation is better than them. 
I mean, if we were homeless, then you would see the thing totally differently. But generally, that's what happened, in a way, to, to live a more privileged life, then give you more that ethical, moral, compassionate kind of uh, choice. You know, what do you do? How do I do it? And it's never comfortable. But I think this is part of life. This is part of uh, being aware. Uh, I thought there was behind, then and then in front. You yeah, know, this is, I mean, this is another a very important point. I mean, I was speaking of busyness in a certain way for us individuals who possibly are not working in the uh, helping profession. But yes, if you are in the helping profession, then in a way, because it is your profession, actually you have to find what are your limits and you have actually to also take care of yourself so that you can be more... Uh, optimum when you next meet. And I think, again, there is this moral kind of compassionate dilemma that, you know, I have to take care of myself as well as taking care of these people in my job. No, no, I think this is also a, a great challenge and very difficult. Uh, yeah? Not a, a question, but just a, a comment of, uh, about a story about creative compassion. Mm-hmm. I, I had read recently art, the British psych- Psychiatrist R.D. Lang was touring a mental hospital, and the attending physicians were presenting uh, this case of a woman who was catatonic, um, had not spoken in several months, and he took his clothes off, walked into her room, and sat down on the floor with her and held her, and after two or three hours, she started speaking for the first time. Yeah, so being very creative. Very creative. creative. Having the courage to be creative. (laughs) (laughs) Yes? Crying, I think, in a way, let's say you can, you can have a sad feeling. And, I mean, also you can, be, you can cry for yourself. You can also cry for others. If something is really sad for others, you can also cry. So we don't necessarily always cry for ourselves. But we have to be careful that sometimes crying does not generate what I would call a negative patterning of self-pity. Because then when we go into self-pity, then, then I think something else really kind of takes over. And sometimes, of course, it can be quite cathartic. But sometimes, actually, it can be quite um, uh, disturbing. And in a way, this is a hard one. When is it compassionate to cry, to let myself cry, as a mean to honor my sadness in this moment? 
And when is it that I must be careful and I must see that if I cry too much in that way, it's going to lead to a very disturbed state. And I think this is only time can tell us, only kind of over time, if this happened to us uh, several times, then we can see which one is in a way is beneficial, which one is compassionate and which one is wise. And when is it really better to find some way not to fall into that kind of uh, what I would call disturbing self-pity crying, which will then will lead to negative patterning appear. And I think one has to, in a way, being careful there. At time, we have to honor it, and time, we have to be careful and find creative way to maybe divert that energy. Because I think the crying is also a certain type of energy, of feeling, kind of emotional, mental energy. So sometimes we might have to find another way to express that kind of tight kind of feeling within ourselves. So then possibly actually movement or dance or meet, being with somebody or I think one then has to find other way. It just depends. I think we have to stop here so that you can have some walking period. This talk was given by Martine Bachelor at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on April 16, 2002. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.